Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. <laughs> I hate to break up a good thing, I'll tell you. you, you I just love seeing what happens here in this moment. But I loved what, what Bob did with us. Yes? Oh, taking us into the presence of the Lord Jesus and remembering his death and resurrection on our behalf. What a sweet moment. And thanks to Clint once again for stepping on the platform. Brandon was wrapping up his last week of vacation uh, this this last week. And so uh, Clint steps in and uh, just leads us so beautifully, so ably. And uh, we're so grateful. But we do want to turn our attention now, church family, to worshiping the Lord through the study of his word. So I'll ask you, if you wouldn't mind, to grab your Bible or your phone or your iPad. And let's head to the book of 1 John near the end of your Bible, very close to the end. 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you got out of the house without your Bible, just raise your hand. We keep some in the back. We're glad to share a copy of God's word with you. And if you don't own a Bible then you keep this Bible. It'll be a gift from our church family to you. And every time you come back, you can bring that Bible with you. And there's a note page in your bulletin. It looks like this. I'll invite you to grab that out because that will be uh, definitely be of some help uh, along the way this morning. If you were here last Sunday, you know that we took a break from our current series in 1 John, being real Christians in an unreal world. And we took that break because many of our ladies were away at the women's retreat up at Hume Lake, and so we zeroed in on the guys last week. And uh, But we're back again today in uh, taking up verses 15 to 17 of chapter 2. So ladies who were on the retreat, you didn't miss anything related to First John. You missed some really cool stuff that we put in front of the guys, but you didn't miss anything related to First John in our study series. Now, recall with me as we step back into John's little letter here that he is writing to Christians in the first century, and he's writing with a very focused purpose. He is writing to tell these Christians how they can tell a real Christian from a phony or a fake or a I want to be a Christian in name only type of person. There were false teachers who were spreading a new and dangerous message that basically said you could have a personal relationship with God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And you could pretty much live any way that you wanted to, and you could treat people any way you wanted to, and you and God would be good. That was the the Gnostic teaching of the day. That was the new teaching that was out there. Well, such a, such a, a message sounds very appealing to our fallen sin nature. And so, not surprisingly, this teaching was spreading rapidly. It was gaining traction. And inevitably, because it's just how Satan works, these false teachers and their message were beginning to make inroads into the church, bringing confusion and drawing some, and not just a small number, away from Jesus and away from the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. And so John, Holy Spirit inspired, he pens this letter to confront this false teaching and help Christians distinguish the real follower of Jesus from the phony follower. John will, in effect, say you can always tell the real from the unreal in three ways. Now, church family, we have been over this so many times that I'm very confident that I could can ask you what those three ways are. And so this is just a little test. I don't want you to cheat. I don't want you to look at any notes. 
but I don't, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I do want to ask you, how can you tell the real from the unreal? How can you do that? Three ways. Yes, that is awesome. That is so good. You remembered. Thank you. That really encourages my heart this morning. So, so, so John has thus far already ventured into all three of these arenas and given tangible, observable proofs that you can use to distinguish the authentic lover of Jesus from the fake follower. Today, the verses that we take up next, verses 15 to 17 of chapter 2, are going to land us uh, once again into this, this third proof category, if you will. You can always tell the real from the unreal by how they love. That's, that's one of the ways. And so, as we have already seen, John will, over and over in this letter, lay out how real Christians love. How they love God, how they love each other. That's a distinguishing feature of a follower of Jesus. They really love well God and others. But for John, the real Christians are not just evidenced by those things that they love. They are evidenced also or proven by the things that they don't love. And that's an important distinction here. Here's what the Holy Spirit says to us. Verse 15, chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Just A small little group of verses, three verses for us today, but more than we can ever begin to unpack. And may the Holy Spirit just burn deeply into our hearts and minds those things that he would want us to take away from this passage today. That we're not being merely hearers of the word, but that we're going to be doers of it as well. You would say amen with me to that? Yeah, yeah, I know you do. So the first thing we notice as we step into verse 15 is that we are being given a command a command not to love. And perhaps that catches us off guard a bit because we are so accustomed to hearing from Scripture admonishments to love. Not not calling us to avoid loving, but calls to love. And so maybe this is just a little bit different for us. Jesus tells us the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love each other, right? Right? We've heard that command from the moment we knew Jesus in the very beginning. And we will keep every other rule of God, Jesus says, if we just obey those two commands, to love God and to love each other. And John is all over that in his letter here. These will be proofs of the real, how you love God and how you love other people. But here, John wants to talk to us about not, um, he wants to talk to us about a, a love that God hates. Not one that he promotes or he encourages in us, but a love that he hates. And we learn more about that here in these verses. We must know more about what a love is that God hates because it's a proof as well of what being a real Christian is all about. What kind of love does God hate? 
do not love the world or the things in the world. Real Christians, those who are the real deal, don't love this world. Would you take that away from verse 15? Yeah. And if we're to have any hope of laying hold of what John means by this, then we must know what he is thinking about when he uses the expression, the world. Now, there are only three main ways this word world is used in the Bible, so that helps us a lot. And if we pay careful attention to the context and we compare Scripture with Scripture, it becomes clear immediately as to what John does not refer to when he uses this term, the world. On your note page, we know right away that he's not thinking about the physical world, the, 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 the earth, if you will, of land and oceans and sun and moon and stars and the macro physical creation and the micro creation. We know that this is not the world that John has in mind because the Holy Spirit, of course, would, would never command us not to love something that God in Genesis 1.31 pronounced as very good, Right? Holy Spirit would never ask us to do that. Even though creation is marred by the fall, our, our physical world still reflects God's glory. It still demands our praise. And so is John thinking about our physical world? Of course not. He's not talking about that in this moment. King David could not restrain himself, if you recall, in, in Psalm 19 when he says these words, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. David is praising God and he's saying your creation screams you, Lord. We would never be told not to love God's world that he has made, the physical world. The Apostle Paul, Holy Spirit led, says this in Romans 1.20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since when? The creation of the world, right? In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And what what Paul is really saying is that no one is going to stand before God and say, you know, how can you judge me, God, because I didn't know you existed. I didn't know you were real. No one will ever be able to say that because the created world, what? Proclaims God. It screams his existence. And no one will have an excuse for not bowing the knee before God in this way. We love this physical world, not as much as we love the one who made it, but we love the world that we live in, right? It's a beautiful world because God made it. Well, there's a second way that the word world is used in Scripture, and that is to refer to the fallen human race. Sinful humanity. It's, it's the way that Scripture uses to refer to you and me. World. The world of fallen humanity. John 3.16. This verse comes to my mind immediately. I wonder if we could say it aloud together as a church family. It's one of our favorite verses, isn't it? Let's do it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we say, Amen and Amen. The world here is clearly the sinful human race that needs a Savior. The Holy Spirit would never tell those who believe in Him not to love the sinners that God loves, right? No. 
In fact, if you if you just look back across your Bible page to chapter two, verse two, uh, where we've already spent a little bit of time, John uses world in precisely this way. Jesus is the propitiation. Do you remember that? You remember that that big, hairy theological word that we shared together on those days? That means an acceptable blood offering to God. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole what? The whole world of fallen sinful humanity. And how we praise God that verse 2 is in our Bibles and that it is true. Well, since the physical world and the world of sinful, sinful humanity is not what John is thinking about, that leaves us with but one other possibility. It's number three there on your note page, right in the middle. John is using the words the world to refer to the spiritual system of beliefs, desires, and sinful activities that are governed by Satan and by his kingdom. The goal of Satan's world system is to lead people to believe that they can live without God, finding fulfillment and satisfaction in created things rather than in their creator. And this, church family, is what John is thinking about um, when he thinks about the world. When the Apostle Paul wrote the Ephesian Christians, he uses world in precisely this way. Do you remember these words? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking to Christians now, and he says, You were once dead spiritually in the sin in which you used to walk when you followed the course of what? This world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? That is Satan, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is alluding to this invisible spiritual belief system in, that originates with Satan, that despises God and desires to lead people uh, to live successful lives but without God in their life. That's the lie that Satan puts into our world, and that is the world's system of belief. Jesus said this in John fifteen eighteen, If the world, what? Hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The evil world system that, 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 that is of Satan, Jesus says it hates me. It hates me and it will hate you if you love me. And John, in a verse that is waiting for us down the road uh, in our study series, he clarifies exactly what he's thinking about in 2.15 when he says this in chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God and that the whole what world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world of Satan's belief system lies in his power. John says real Christians see the world that they live in not as an innocent, God-fearing place, but, it is an, but as an entire way of thinking and believing and acting that is hostile to God and that is firmly in the grip of the evil one, in the power of the evil one, John said there in 519. When a person becomes a Christian, a genuinely devoted lover of the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he has done, appropriated into your life by grace through faith, that person is no longer a slave 
to this world system, this evil world way of believing. Colossians 1.13, does it not declare this glorious truth? God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. It's another way to refer to the world that Satan rules. God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The dominion of darkness, that's the satanically driven world system of beliefs, desires, and practices. We have been rescued out of that. Amen? By virtue of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of a brand new world, a brand new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Therefore, if you flip your note page over, John wants us to know that these two worlds are utterly and totally and completely incompatible. They are at odds with one another. Notice again, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Fellow Christian, this is, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired declaration that a love for God and a love for this present world system are mutually exclusive. They are inherently incompatible loves. This world is, the, is in direct opposition to God and to his kingdom. And God is so opposed to this evil world system that he sends his only son into it to overcome it and deal a death blow to it. These are antithetical loves, love of the world and love of God. They cannot peacefully coexist. And we don't have to look any farther than the current moral and ethical deterioration of our own culture to see an unmistakable line of demarcation between the things of God and the things of this world. It is impossible to miss the aggressively hostile agenda of our culture, of this world system towards God's values. We live in it. We cannot miss seeing it. Note the all-out assault on the family in our day. The family is biblically defined. The redefining of marriage just recently by our Supreme Court. Or the complete ignoring of marriage altogether in our culture. More people live together than get married, right? That's an assault on the family. Where is that rooted? Well, that's rooted in the world, isn't it? Satan's belief system has been embraced by the world. What about the assault on the unborn? That, that the, 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 the unborn aren't, they're not human beings. They're not worthy of life. They're just a blob. Where does that come from? That comes from the world, doesn't it? The active promotion of, of homosexuality or sexual promiscuity or pornography, the ever-increasing acceptance of, of violence as a source of entertainment in our culture, where does that come from? That comes from the world. The selling of materialism and, and self-gratification by secular media as the way to be happy. All you got to do is watch an hour of television and, and our culture is going to tell you how you can be happy. <laughs> Buy all of these things, right? Have all of this stuff and you will be happy. Where does that come from? It comes from the world. And the world system is, is sourced in the person of Satan. This is his agenda. 
the decline in standards of, of personal integrity and, and, and business ethics has arrived to a place now where you and I cannot trust anyone, really, in our culture. My word is my bond. What does that mean? It means nothing in our day, right? Right? Where does that come from? Well, that comes from a world system that says truth doesn't matter anymore. The undermining of right and wrong by false religions to the point where even truly evil conduct is twisted into something virtuous. Where does that come from? It comes from the world. And in our culture, there is this obsession with the newest and fastest growing religion in America. And it's called the religion of tolerance, isn't it? Tolerance. It's the word we hear all the time. To the point now that if you stand for anything, especially anything godly or God-centered or biblical, you are narrow, you are exclusive, you are bigoted, and you are in need of tolerance reinforcement training. Right? Right? Wrong. Wrong. That's true. It's wrong. But this is the world that John is talking about. Brothers and sisters, all of this is sourced in the world system of beliefs, desires, and sinful activities that are governed by Satan and his kingdom. And the biblical writer James is in perfect step with John when he writes these words. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is what? It is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Could the Spirit be any more clear? Two incompatible loves, the love of the world and the love of God. To love one requires that you buy in and embrace a set of values and perspectives that makes loving the other impossible. If I love God, then He's my ultimate and He's the goal of my, my life and, and, and my desire is to worship and to serve and to please Him and to love Him. If I love the world, then the world is my ultimate. And the goal in my life is to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in what the world has to offer. I cannot love them both. The Apostle Paul got it right when he said in Galatians 6.14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the, what's the word? The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Oh, brothers and sisters, that, that you and I could echo those words in the deepest part of our heart. Yes? I've been crucified to the world. And the world has died to me. If I say I love the Father and I love His Son who died for me, but in, the, in my heart I'm actually treasuring an entire system of values that hates God, my claims to love God cannot be true. They have to be empty words. I can't be genuinely saved without loving God and I cannot love God and at the same time love what hates God. I will either love one or the other, but I will never love both. And this is why loving the world is yet another test of who is real and who is not. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not 
in him. Authentic Christians will not be characterized by a habitual love of the world any more than people in love with the world will demonstrate a sincere affection for the person of Jesus and the Father who sent him. Being real in an unreal world means loving God and not this world. Are we clear? (laughs) Beat it to death, Tim. Beat it to death. Well, this prompts John to next tell us why this is true. Why not love the world? Verse 16. Well, because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. It comes from the world. John's argument is one of source. To love the Father means I love everything that comes from Him. To love the world means I'm all about what comes from this world. Love the source and you love what comes from it. The human heart only has one throne. And a genuine Christian will have God on that throne and and live directionally with a greater love for God than anything else in this world. Love the source and you'll love what comes from it. And this principle works out in human relationships, if you think about this with me for just a moment. Uh, Last month, uh, Lisa and I celebrated our 37th anniversary. The date was September the 21st, and and that date fell midweek. And so Lisa and I decided that we would hold off on doing something special to celebrate our anniversary until there was a, a better time for that to happen. But folks, I am telling you that that Lisa gave me an anniversary card that just blew me away. I mean, it blew me away. She is, a, she is masterfully gifted uh, at writing from the heart. And what she wrote to me in this card, which I keep on my dresser, what she wrote to me in this card is so amazing. It is so precious to me. I'm not going to read it to you just in case you thought I was going there. I'm not going there. This is just for me. But I love this card. Now, do I love this card because it's a card? Do I love this card because of the picture on the front of it? Do I love this card because of what is written inside of it? Not even that so much. I love this card because I love its source. You follow that? Yeah? I love Lisa, and therefore, I love what Lisa gives me. I love the source, so I love what comes from the source. And so John says, love the world, and you will love what comes from the world. Love the Father, and you love what comes from the Father. So, why not love the world? Well, John says in verse 16, because the desires of the world do not have their source in the Father. And then he describes them as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. If we take a moment now just to unpack each of these just briefly, when John speaks of the desires of the flesh, he's using that phrase the way that the rest of the Bible uses it, namely to refer to the sin-infected heart. 
that longs to express itself in the only way that it can, and that is through our flesh, through our, our body. When God created us in the garden, when he made us, he made us with desires, and he made us with good desires. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them with these really wonderful desires, holy desires. And with every good desire that he created, he also created a way for that desire to be satisfied in a godly, right, and good way. But when sin entered the human stream through Adam and Eve, those good desires were corrupted and the holy heart became sin-infected. We know the story. And now exposed to the world of Satan-sourced beliefs and activities, all of which are opposed to God and his values, the once good desires of God are perverted and they are distorted into a, a slavish pursuit of the things that don't honor God. And Jesus diagnosed the problem perfectly in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they do what? They defile a person. They defile a person. They're all opposed to the person of God and his heart. They come from within the sinful heart, but they are drawn out of the heart by the enticements of the world and this system of values that Satan has presented. It says you can find your fulfillment and your satisfaction in all of these ways. And the sinful heart embraces that lie. Paul puts the exclamation point on Jesus' words when he writes this in Galatians chapter 5. Now, the works of the, what's the next word? The flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not, what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Again, we come back to these two things, the two loves that are incompatible. The sinful attitudes and actions of my heart, they are enticed to express themselves by this world system. And I have this irresistible appeal to want to go in that direction. And who's the enslaver? It is Satan. Desire is good. Desire is good. But to desire anything more than God, you know that is coming straight from the world, don't you? It's coming straight from the world. That is the sin nature within us making appeal through the flesh. Does that mean that we shouldn't enjoy the things of this world? It's not saying that. It's not saying that at all. But we must be ever alert to the danger of putting those, those things of the world first in our life before the Lord, what the world system values rather than what God values. Desires of the flesh. John says next that the world also entices us to thoughts and actions contrary to God through the desires of our what? Of our eyes. Our eyes, of course, are one of God's truly amazing gifts. You stop and think about it. The fact that you and I can see, who could come up with that but God? It's amazing creation, part of his creation. They enable us to see 
his beautiful world uh, and his excellent works. We use these eyes to see him. However, even as they let in God's beauty, they are, because our hearts are sin infected, they are really an open window for the world's temptations to come in. And this causes those who have bought into Satan's world system to be plunged into dissatisfactions, covetousness, and discontent. I can't really be happy or satisfied or fulfilled unless I have, then you fill in the blank, this thing that I've seen. Right? I can't be happy until I have that. No one perhaps know the ultimate emptiness and heartache that the desire of the eyes can bring into your life more than an ancient king by the name of David. Remember that moment in David's story? David's strolling around on the balcony of his house one day and he sees a beautiful woman bathing in the backyard down below his house. And that sight, that which he saw with his eyes, stirred sinful desires that resided in his heart and the consequence of following those desires led him to adultery, deception, and even murder. And the consequences of all of that he carried with him the rest of his life. Our eyes themselves do not lust, but what we see goes through our eyes and straight down to our heart, right? If our hearts love the world, if our hearts love the values of this world and the morals of this world and the things of this world, the desire to possess what we see erupts within us. I've got to have that. And so we can actually say that eye lust is really the visual component of heart lust. The eyes desire what the heart craves. For David, it was a a sensual temptation that entered through his eyes. But but man, it it, it could be anything that we desire more than God. It's going to come through our eyes most of the time. If you obsess over Corvettes, you are going to see every Corvette on the road, right? Right? Am I right? You will. You, You know this. I know this. If, if, if you see uh, your church friend's new furniture, when you go home, you look at your furniture and you go, hmm. I don't like this anymore. Right? If you covet coffee, you will see every Starbucks that is on the road. Right? What we desire in our hearts, we see with our eyes. It is amazing. The love the world and it will offer up for your vision anything that you desire. Your eyes will see it. And that is why we read in Scripture such verses as these from Job 31. 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Every guy in this room needs to memorize that verse, right? From Psalm 101, verse 3, I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. This is a declaration of what I'm going to look at, what I'm going to to focus on. 
from Psalm 119.37. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. The psalmist here sees the relationship between his life and what he sees. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And then the third in this trio of enticements coming out of the world system is the pride of life. Literally, this reads the boastfulness of life. The NIV actually goes with the boasting of what he has and sees, right? Is that what it says in your your NIV? Yeah. And that really captures the intent of John here pretty well. This is the person who finds their worth and their importance and really their whole life identity in either their possessions or their position in this world. That's what really matters in this moment. This person is all about themselves ultimately. They want others to be convinced of their importance. And so they make sure as best they can that others know who they are and what they own and what they have done. The pride of life. This is the materialist who, whose identity is wrapped up in his house and his car and his bank account, his possessions. And this is the ladder climber who's bent on position. Probably a combination of these two are at work. And and one writer says, this is not a desire to keep up with the Joneses. This is always going to be a desire to need more than the Joneses have. Right? The pride of life. Why? Because that's where your value rests. And our world says you only have worth if you have possessions and you have position. You bought into the lie of the world. To be clear, Possessions and position are not the problem. The problem, the sin, is the the pride or or the value placed on these things to exalt one's self. Pride is the sin that, that corrupts our understanding of who we are. Brothers and sisters, we are the image bearers of the eternal God. We were made by him to know him, to love him, to serve and worship him and live with him forever. That is our exalted standing. But the world, it refuses to accept this reality. And places within our hearts this desire to be exalted. Not to humbly accept our position as an image bearer, but to be the exalted creator, if you will. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, Paul writes about this. He says, claiming to be wise... They became fools. He's talking about the unbeliever, the one who's in the world, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When I love the world, then my sinful heart through my flesh is dominated by the desires of the world. My eyes rove for worldly gratification and my heart covets after and then boasts about what I have and what I've done. John says all of this, the lust of the flesh, the the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, all of this are not from the Father, right? Verse 16. So when the course of my life is toward identity and security in this world system sourced in Satan, fulfillment and satisfaction from the things of the world, 
that's proof that I'm not real. I'm not the real deal if this is where I'm getting my stuff. If anyone loves the world, again, verse 15, the love of the Father is what? It is not in him. There on your note page, in bold red with an underline, do you find that? I just want to call your attention to that and encourage you. Perhaps this week, uh, during your quiet time, see if you can trace out Satan's strategy here as we've explored it. If you can see his strategy at work when he tempts Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and when he tempts Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Go to those two places and see if you do not find there an invitation to the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. You will find them there. And then John has this closing caveat in verse 17. And, and by the way, John says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God does what? Abides forever. This is John's way of saying, hey, if you're going to love something, and you will, you will love something, love the one who lasts, right? Make him your love. Love God, not this world. Satan and his world system of lies and deceptions and, and, and the promise of fulfillment and purpose and meaning, he can't deliver. He cannot deliver. All he'll deliver is heartache and death. And this world, John says, is on borrowed time. Why would you want to love what is going to disappear? What is going to pass away? And interestingly enough, it is John who gets to write about the demise of this world and of Satan. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I love knowing the end of the story, don't you? Don't you love that? God has told us the end of the story. Why would anyone knowingly want to be on the losing team? The world is passing away along with its desires, John says. That is true. But this satanically energized world system isn't done yet, is it? It fights hard to survive. Society and media and everything around us seeks to entice us to love this world. If we don't remain constantly vigilant, brothers and sisters, we can almost, without realizing it, buy into what it is selling. The key is to squeeze out world love by filling our hearts and our minds with an increasing love for God and His Son. And we do that by taking full advantage of all the things that God has given us to abide in Him. What things, Tim? Well, we've all been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, right? Through faith in Jesus. We have His Word. We hold it in our laps right now. We have His church to share and to call our home. We have ready confession when we, when we do break his heart. We have accountability and transparency with others that we can engage in here, brothers and sisters, who will love us to holiness. Corporate worship, we did that this morning. Private worship, we get to do that through our devotional times. Sharing our earthly possessions and our wealth with others so that it never has a grip on our hearts. We're generous givers of what we have. We have the gospel that we get to share with other people. We've been given gifts to serve his church with and so very much more. 
But more than anything else, we have Jesus, right? We have Jesus. And we've placed our hope in him and given our love to him. John, John Owen, a pastor who lived in the 1600s, writes words that I think are the perfect little cap on our time together here. He says, when someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ, the cross of Jesus, and you will find no room for the world. Fill your affections with the cross of Jesus and you will find no room for this world. May it be so. Let's pray together. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit. Thank you for the sweet time around the communion table where we were reminded of what it means to to be in you and to love you and what you did to make that possible. And thank you for the challenge of your word today. We so want to be doers and not just hearers of it. It is a beautiful world that you have made, Lord. But the world we've been talking about is dark. It is black. And it hates you. And we do not want to love this world. We want to love you. Make it so for your glory, for our good. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And they-